Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. So, Will, these days you're looking into a little bit of offline activism that a rogues gallery of our usual kooky characters are starting to get into. Can you give us a readout about that? Yeah, so this is a a little heads up to Fever Dream listeners, that if you see someone out there carrying a chunky marker, it's not because they're getting into tagging. Instead, they're getting into the latest trend sweeping the MAGA internet, and in particular MAGA Telegram. I'm always interested when this kind of activism spills offline. We end up with stuff like attacks on 5G towers or January 6th. So in this case, the hot new meme on Telegram is one that urges people to carry around black markers. And when you see a QR code, like say on a restaurant menu or maybe as part of some sort of vaccine or testing system, you take the marker and you just put a little dot. Now, their theory is that this will make it impossible to use the QR code and maybe even, you know, bring down the system. So so let me just read this meme that's been going around. It's a picture of a big, chunky black marker. And it says, crash the system. Always carry a permanent black marker pen. As you pass a QR code, simply add a dot. Those checking in after will be blocked. The system will crash. So this has kind of become a hot topic with the emergence of Omicron. And so people are the sense that we got to get over COVID. This thing is sticking with us. Ugh. let's bring down the COVID regime. So this has been passed around, let's say, like white nationalist telegram, QAnon telegram, it goes without saying, anti-vaccine circles online. So I'm intrigued to see if this marker thing is going to pick up. I'm still a little bit confused what this has to do with Emperor Fauci's regime or whatever they're trying to target here. This seems more concerned with the uh, the lack of paper menus regime at restaurants. And I have to say, I am sick of the whole QR code thing at restaurants. It was established in about the third or fourth month of the pandemic that fomites aren't real, or at least not a, the little particles, right? You're not going to catch COVID from a menu. And that's why I think they should propagate this fomites aren't real manifesto. This is a, a big issue for me. But basically, I think the idea is that our COVID lockdown system, I guess, relies on QR codes. And if only they could block them, we would all be free again. This carries the same logic to it that if you clipped enough coupons when you sh- <laughs> before you shop at Walgreens or CVS, you will be able to shut down the CDC. <laughs> So have you seen this in the wild at all, Will? I live in an area where I don't think QAnon Telegram is particularly like popular, but I do think that that there is a good possibility, I think, that people will start seeing this more because the barrier to entry is incredibly low, right? You just grab a Sharpie on your way out of the house, keep it in your purse or your pocket. And I do think we might start seeing situations where kind of a mega granny 
is at dinner and sort of just pulls out a little Sharpie and goes like, <laughs> just like marking every QR code at the cafe, like going table to table. Imagining having to explain that to the rest of your family during like Christmas break. Here, give me your menu. Whack, you know? And the other thing is paper towels exist, right? I mean, people can <laughs> people can wipe this off. I guarantee this is going to be a thing that happens and will be out there in the universe. And I just want to flag it for the listeners. I mean, the Fever Dream has a history of being ahead of things before they happen. We were one of the first to talk about Let's Go Brandon. And now I see people with giant TVs mounted to their trucks, like huge <laughs> LCD displays saying Let's Go Brandon. So in some ways, I think Fever Dreams has a power of manifesting things into reality. And I think that this is going to happen with this. You know what it also looks like, though? It looks like the markers you use when you're playing bingo. Like a super <laughs> chunky one. Boom, boom, boom. I'm looking at the meme right now that just has crashed the system as if, like, this should be a billboard with a gigantic anarchy symbol on it. Something like that. Like, that's kind of what you'd conjure if you were building from scratch. But no, it's just a marker. It's just this tiny little Crash the system. Bring back paper menus. No QR codes on subway advertising. Okay, so who is the biggest name so far who you've seen who is engaging in this kind of slacktivism? That's a great term for it, slacktivism. I think this is like really popular in the chat room of this person named Tori, who is a, a somewhat enigmatic QAnon adjacent figure who was cited in Sidney Powell's lawsuits as sort of a expert with the deep state. The reason I, I bring it up is Tori's other claim to fame is that her group is they love printing off stickers with Joe Biden kind of doing like finger guns and saying, I did that. And then you stick it on a gas pump with high prices. And so that's kind of their big thing. So if people have seen those. That's the work of the Tory army. So now I guess they're, they're ordering a bunch of Sharpies and this is what's next. So what's the end game here? Like if they do this enough, then Joe Biden won't be able to force you to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the end game, I would ask you, have you seen V for Vendetta? Okay, I was going to ask you if they were going for V for Vendetta, the first Matrix, or... I don't know, Marathon Man. I just don't know what they're going for here. <laughs> well, I feel like with a lot of this stuff, the goal is pretty ambitious, right? They're saying crash the system. But I think in reality, like so much of the sort of COVID era activism, the real result is that someone in a service industry position will say, well, huh, that's somewhat annoying. Imagine thinking that it was this easy to bring down a complex bureaucratic regime that you're fighting against. Like revolutions in tiny Latin American countries would be way easier if all they had to do was like start I don't know, drawing with a Sharpie on a sidewalk or Sabotage something. Sabotage the QR code. So moving on to something surprisingly somehow nuttier than that. Will, you and I have both been keeping tabs on a whole host of zany yet somehow miraculously influential figures on the Trumpian right. And a trend we've been noticing recently is that within those influential cliques, there's been a good amount of infighting and backstabbing recently, stuff that amounts to very high school style drama. Trumpist attorney Lynn Wood has to stand tall at the head of the pack when you're talking about that kind of melodrama. What have you been tracking most recently in terms of how Lynn Wood is starting to have meltdown after meltdown after meltdown, and how is it ensnaring other prominent MAGA figures uh, sort of in the same proximity? Yeah, it's a QAnon civil war. I mean, this is our newsreel from the latest update on the QAnon civil war. So people might say, wait, is this last week's episode where all this talk about Lynn Wood blowing up on all his friends? 
Well, it just keeps getting worse. It's How does really it keep getting worse? Up. I'll tell you what. This thing is getting so crazy out there. I had to get up at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning to feed my cat. And I looked at Twitter, you know, as you got to do. Wait, wait, back up for a second. Are you usually up at 3 a.m. feeding your cat? Yeah, she wakes me up. Oh, wow. <laughs> but in this case, she was like, Dad, wake up. You got to write a blog post. Lynn Woods going off on Telegram. So here's what happened. So basically, the backstory here is Kyle Rittenhouse last week said Lynn Wood was a crappy lawyer for him and deliberately kept him in jail to raise funds off of his imprisonment, which is really not like what they teach you in law school. So Lynn is kind of on on his back foot now. And then he wanted all of his buddies, Sidney Powell, Patrick Byrne, Overstock.com CEO, and Michael Flynn to back him up. And they did to varying degrees, but more or less, they didn't. So last week's episode, we covered that there was this kind of brewing drama. Well, Lynn has a sideline in tape recording all of his phone calls, or or a lot of his phone calls. And I have experienced this myself. I go into this every time I talk to him on the phone, knowing he's going to record me, because he goes, I recorded you, boy. Yes, this is a famed defamation attorney. What does he think he's going to get from you? I suspect he thinks that I'm going to say, I'm going to slander you, pal. And then he's like, I gotcha. With our (laughs) colleague, Zach Patrizzo, was on the phone with him recently, and Lynn released audio of it. And it was supposed to somehow vindicate Lynn, but the first, like, minute is Zach choking on a burrito he was eating, I guess, when Lynn called. And he's just going, like, and Lynn's like, don't choke on your burrito, boy. (laughs) You have to chew. Chew, boy. Okay, so did Lynn, like, save Zach's life there by telling him not to choke on the burrito? Told him to chew. Zach didn't know that. Oh, well, congratulations. So what happens here is Lynn has this cache of audio with his friends as well, who seem to have not realized that Lynn is like Harriet the Spy out here with his tape recorder. So what happens is, first he releases audio of Patrick Byrne, who is this Overstock.com guy who is involved in kind of like a lot of various drama. He funded a lot of the Arizona audit. And in this audio, Patrick Byrne, talks a lot of trash on Sidney Powell. He says, oh, Sidney wanted to sleep with me. And when I rejected her, she accused me of poisoning her. She told all the evangelicals I poisoned her. Now, why does this matter? Because I think these people want to make money on the evangelical speaking circuit. There's like a lot of accusations there. Lynn also called Patrick Pat Dick. So to give you the idea of the drama we're getting into. But the thing that my cat woke me up about was even an escalation beyond that. Because Lynn dropped audio of Michael Flynn, his erstwhile buddy and QAnon hero, former national security advisor, just absolutely ripping into QAnon. Now, Michael Flynn is this guy who has, QAnon's been very good to Michael Flynn. Some of them believe he's Q. He certainly has not done much to dissuade that misapprehension. He sells QAnon merchandise. He auctioned off a QAnon quilt a couple months back. I mean, this is a guy who is thick as thieves with QAnon. But privately with Lynn, Lynn calls him up and he says, your QAnon buddies are going after me. And Michael Flynn says, I don't know about that. QAnon's a CIA operation. It's nonsense. So this is a pretty big break from what he does publicly. Huh. How has that been going over? on QAnon internet, that their god emperor, Michael Flynn, is just basically calling them a bunch of morons and suckers behind their backs. You know, Swin, I think that's, let me pause for a second. I'm sorry, my cat broke in. This is amateur hour here, letting the cat in one sec. Okay, so how exactly is that going over in QAnon land and the vast QAnon internet that their god king, Michael Flynn, is basically calling them suckers and losers and people ready for the grifting behind their back? It's not being received well. I mean, basically, what I think is going on here, if I can play, armchair psychologist is I think Lynn is realizing 
well, if Kyle Rittenhouse is going after me, my appeal and ability to raise money from people like from the larger MAGA world is going to be kind of imperiled now. And I might not be able to hit the circuit anymore. But the QAnon people still love me. Who's my biggest competition for QAnon affection? Michael Flynn is the answer. So I'm going to put out this audio of Michael Flynn just totally ripping into QAnon and totally like salt the earth for him in terms of getting QAnon money. And so I think QAnon people are still going to be like, oh, I like Michael Flynn. You can always say it's the darn deep state up to it again. That only goes so far. You can only use that so many times. (laughs) Well, in their hearts, they know the truth. Yes. And it also it, it sort of imperils the circuit. Right. And so I've seen Michael Flynn. I saw him in Tulsa. I saw him in Dallas at these QAnon events. But now it gets a little difficult for a guy named QAnon John, for example, to have Michael Flynn come to the conference because Michael Flynn's saying this is all a CIA plot. And it sort of makes it hard for Michael Flynn, too, because it looks like, wait, you think this is a CIA plot, but you're participating in it? This basically started a big civil war. There's a lot of like QAnon, QAnon adjacent minions of Linwood guys who like have names like the professor's record, who was a recently fired professor, who is the ex-professor's record. There's a guy, he has like a lot of these guys and including, I should say, the JFK Jr. people in Dallas. So they've all sided with Lynn. Michael Flynn obviously has his own adherence, but this has really like started a lot of drama. So much so, I've been calling it a civil war, but maybe it's more like a prison riot because... There's kind of like this one inciting incident, which is Michael Flynn versus Lynn Wood. But this is also set off like a lot of people who have beefs with people on the other side, but that are totally unrelated to this. But now they're seeing this as their opportunity to settle scores with their rivals. And so you have QAnon personalities all down the line being like, well, that enemy of mine, he's supporting Lynn Wood. But we all know on Team Flynn that Lynn Wood's a crackpot. So I'm going to go shank that rival of mine really for nothing related to this. But it really is like things are all on fire over there. It's really turning into the Lebanese Civil War of QAnon land. There are just so many different factions, weird alliances that don't really make sense. And it's uh, getting kind of sanguinary out there for these guys. I mean, look, and a lot of this has to do with obviously just wild allegations, both based in things that could very well exist in reality. But then there are also elements of it where doesn't Lynn Wood keep saying that Trump's former national security advisor is a Satanist? Right. This is a new escalation. I mean, right. In terms of like, why should people care about this? On one hand, to be clear, a Satanist pedophile, not just a Satanist. The allegation from Lynn Wood is Satanist pedophile former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Well, Linwood is striking at a point where Michael Flynn is sort of weak in QAnon and the larger evangelical community that overlaps with it. Because he had this thing a few months back, I wrote about it for The Beast, where Michael Flynn used this really weird prayer that involved like sevenfold rays and sevenfold legions that it turned out, I'm sure he had Googled St. Michael prayer, but what he ended up with is this prayer from this doomsday prophet named Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who really kind of a kooky character. So people were suddenly like, like, is this a Satanist prayer? What are what are these legions? And so now this has become a big thing for the Flynn crew is that they have to like comb through theology to find any mention of legions and rays and stuff. I mean, so they're really distracted and defensive. But Lynn Wood has really stepped it up. Initially, this was like, oh, Michael Flynn. I thought we were my he's my brother, but he's not defending me on social media. He's not saying Kyle Rittenhouse is a, has been captured by the CIA. But now he's posting this stuff from this other QAnon guy who's currently on the run from the law who was involved in the QAnon kidnapping gang uh, associated with them that I wrote about and that basically claims, oh, Michael Flynn is torturing children with help from Joe Biden and stuff. And that's not really 
stuff you go back from. Michael Flynn did work in the government during the Obama administration. So, you know, the dots are all there to connect, I suppose. That's exactly right. And also classic Michael Flynn would totally be someone who would secretly be a part of a CIA plot that he is kind of deriding in public. So again, this all kind of fits together in this conspiratorial fictional tapestry. But okay, so I keep coming back to the point that, yes, it seemed utterly predictable that this cabal of like extreme Trumpists and 2020 election deniers would start eating each other alive. I mean, if you weren't predicting that in, say, November or December 2020, I don't know what to tell you. But the severity and the extremities that they've gone to at this point, basically a year out from when they started their joint crusade, the intensity of it is flooring me a little bit. Even I, as cynical as I was about their friendships or fake friendships, was not expecting it to collapse into this gigantic, like, fireball of just rank idiocy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it really has become a circular firing squad out there. And this isn't just QAnon, right? I mean, this extends to sort of the larger stop the steal movement. I mean, Ali Alexander's gotten involved, January 6th organizer, protest outside Congress that he's taken Flynn's side. I mean, this is really consuming sort of the larger Trump world. And so it'll be interesting. I mean, obviously right now, Trump is not as active as he once was. So they don't really have a figure to rally around. But it'll be interesting to see how these groups come together or don't ahead of the midterm. Is there a single MAGA luminary who's tried to step up and say, no, guys, we all have the same common goal. Don't fight mom and dad. Is there anybody who is willing to stick his or her neck out to uh, make such a reproachment of sorts? No one immediately springs to mind, but there definitely have been people being like, wow, it's crazy out there. We should really focus. It's okay that he called you a Satanist pedophile. Let's calm down. (laughs) (laughs) While they're all worrying about like slandering and libeling each other in public, Joe Biden is getting away with everything. He is just making the deep state stronger in their not so lucid imagination. So I don't see how anybody could possibly think this is helping anything they're trying to achieve, unless this is all just a grift done by famous and powerful people against incredibly dupable masses. That couldn't possibly be it. Well, surely it's not that. Surely (laughs) not. Okay, so speaking of the deep state, Will, have you heard about this latest book that the CIA has put out that basically makes itself look good and Trump look like a fucking moron? Have you heard about this? I have heard about this. I didn't realize the CIA got to just like put out books owning presidents. (laughs) Tell me more. Okay, okay, okay. So there's this book that the Central Intelligence Agency regularly publishes and routinely revises. It describes how our nation's hardworking, hard-partying spies update American presidents on national security matters. It's kind of like, I guess every few years, it's basically like a graduation video except for the CIA and about how they worked with X, Y, or Z American president. So the latest edition of this book has quite a bit to say about our former president, Donald J. Trump, as you might imagine. And it subtly but not so subtly trashes him as this sort of shithead. For the uninitiated, the book is called Getting to Know, surely for all the money the Central Intelligence Agency, Getting to Know the President. Getting to Know the President. Well, he sucks. He's no good. And also for all the money the Central Intelligence Agency gets on an annual basis, you'd think they'd be able to come up with a better name than that. This is just bad comms work. Like, who's marketing this? Anyway, the passages are authored by the agency's former Inspector General, John Helgerson, who I'm told is a rather respected guy in the field. Anyway, according to a story on this updated book, written by our Daily Beast colleague Jose Palieri, the situation in the waning days of Trump's presidency was so uncommon that it actually caused concern among some administration officials that Trump was losing touch with reality. Shocker. 
as he was getting unhinged advice on domestic issues from Justice Department attorneys and outside counsel that openly advocated rejecting election results. Okay, so just to give some context here, if you're high up enough in the intelligence community, chances are decent that you've briefed the president on intel and national security matters. The president of the United States is supposed to get a daily written intelligence report and then also oral briefings on these classified and or top secret matters. But ever since the very start of his time in office, Donald Trump was sort of became notorious within the intel communities for valuing photos and pretty pictures in the reports instead of, you know, actual words and phrases and sentences about America's vital national security matters. He demanded almost right off the bat in 2017 that the written memos and the in-person briefings all be dramatically scaled down and shortened since he has the attention span of a particularly stupid child, not just any run-of-the-mill kid. So. Things got so bad in the closing days of Trump's term that around the time of the January 6th riot, this apparently led to Trump no longer getting his regularly scheduled picture book reading. This book by Helgerson notes that, quote, the briefings were to resume on January 6th, but none were scheduled after the attack on the Capitol, end quote. Why do we think that is? I don't know. Why do you think that could possibly be, Will? <laughs> We think Trump was just so mad that he was like, I don't, I don't want to hear that crap anymore. Well, right after the January 6th riot, as our listeners may remember, there was just such an utter breakdown at the top, top echelons of the U.S. government that so many regular operations, both because Trump was disrupting them or other people were afraid to continue to do things with the then leader of the free world, were entirely disrupted. And that apparently and unsurprisingly rippled to certain sectors of the CIA, the Pentagon even within the White House's West Wing, what have you. Anyway, something else I want to note, Will, did you know that former presidents continue to get intelligence briefings? I didn't. It sounds sick, though. I would love to be like, how's that guy doing? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, he's, he's doing a terrible job. <laughs> like, it was like when I left my college newspaper or like this Alt Weekly I worked at, I had to stop reading them for a while because I was just too like, well, I wouldn't have done it like that. But I have to imagine it's like that for presidents, too. Exactly. And this is typically done as not just a courtesy, but in the event that one of their successors might want to call up a former president for confidential counsel or advice on important domestic, or I should say foreign policy or national security matter, um, I guess the gears of the U.S. government thought it would be wise to keep former presidents who are still alive clued in. Obama still gets them. Jimmy Carter still gets them. But in February, President Joe Biden said that he was barring Donald Trump from getting them any longer for, I think, obvious reasons. Our listeners can look up what Joe Biden said at the time. I think it's pretty obvious why uh, uh, there was no loss, love loss between the two at that moment. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like he was super interested in getting the, the briefings, to be honest, anyway. I guess I'm just fascinated by this document in general, just in terms of, like, that the CIA gets to sort of, like, rate class participation by each president after they leave it's office. It's rate by professor, but for the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah, it's, like, seemed distant. I did read this thing, and I thought he was noting it. It was interesting that it was like Mike Pence, by comparison, was quite engaged in his briefings and got six a week, always had many questions and asked for the supplemental briefings and all this stuff. Unlike, hmm. If the CIA gets taxpayer subsidies 
to do this. I think former presidents should get a taxpayer subsidized like burn book to write about all the agencies or departments that they hated. It's like, oh, this fucker couldn't brief for shit. Department of Agriculture, total idiot. Yes, exactly. I, it's only fair. But well, would it surprise you to learn that when we reached out to Donald Trump's office early this week about the reporting we had and also the details in this newly revised CIA book, that he tried to convince us that his current lack of post-presidency briefings is all his own decision. It was all by his own design. Would it surprise you to learn that he's trying to spin us on that perhaps not quite right premise? I'd be stunned. What's going on there? Okay, so on Tuesday morning, Trump's office sent me this following quote, and it's something else. Quote, they never got canceled by Biden. He didn't cut them off. President Trump didn't feel it would be appropriate after leaving, so he stopped them. He would have continued to get them if he wanted, end quote. Okay, so I would be willing to bet a good deal of cash that that statement was dictated directly by our glorious former president, Donald Trump himself. And it obviously strains credulity to say the least. It, it has incredibly huge you didn't dump me, I broke up with you first energy to it. And I'm not a former spook or anything like that, but I really don't think that's even how it works. I mean, Will, you tell me, can a private citizen, former president, if barred by the current leader of the free world from getting these stupid fucking briefings, I don't know, could Donald Trump now just march in in khakis into Langley and say, okay, briefing time now, what's going on with Libya? I don't think so. I mean, now that Biden's cut him off, it definitely seems like it wasn't really up to him personally say. It's an interesting feud, I think. And certainly, I think if Trump gets reelected, I think we can expect the same in kind for Biden. Yeah. Well, I mean, we might have an opportunity to find out in just a few years. Up next, we have an interview with the man responsible for Festivus. Stick with us. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On today's episode, we're pleased to welcome to the show Dan O'Keefe, a guy who has operated in the shadows of Hollywood for decades as one of my personal favorite TV comedy writers. Even if you don't know him by name, there's a good chance you know his work from shows like Seinfeld, The League, Silicon Valley, and Veep. For Netflix viewers, you'll also be able to catch some of his handiwork on the upcoming second season of the Steve Carell satirical comedy Space Force. Dan, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. Good to talk to you as well. Okay, so to kick things off, and since we are now in the thick of the holiday season, I think we need to start with something that is probably very near and dear to your heart or something that has become sort of a social nuisance in your life. You tell me if it's more of column A or column B. What would that be? Something our listeners 
may be pleased to find out is that you are the Seinfeld writer who gave the world Festivus, something that is sort of taken on its own sort of socio-political phenomenon and life of its own. Can you run our listeners through how exactly that came to be and why you are the person to either credit for this fake holiday or to blame for it? No. Next question. <laughs> sure. Wow, what a surprise. Well, I mean this in the nicest way possible. My father was an undiagnosed bipolar severe alcoholic, nonetheless was extremely high functioning and held down a job as an editor at the Reader's Digest and had an advanced degree and was, was extremely erudite, also came from an extremely working class background, which he was constantly trying to make sure no one knew about. And in so doing, he reminded everyone of it constantly. The, I think the phrase is, came up from nothing and brought it with him. And in his attempt to, at one point he said it was a, an anniversary of his first date with my mom, but he also said a lot of crazy shit, about a lot of crazy shit. So who knows? I think it was to show that he knew who the Romans were, because in some ways it was patterned after the Roman Saturnalia and some of the other holidays of antiquity. But yeah, growing up, myself and my two brothers were in a form of child abuse that yet wasn't recognized as such by the state of New York, <laughs> induced to perform seasonal rituals in a framework that Al, my colleague and friend Alec Berg referred to once as just a very formalized setting for yelling at us. It was a holiday that was unique to our family. That was ostensibly a strength. And it didn't have a set date, as I've mentioned previously. Unlike the Jeff Schaefer is the one who fixed the date at December 23rd. It was part of the joke to get a leg up on Christmas. But that was arbitrary. In real life, it just happened whenever the fuck he felt like it or was extremely hungover and wanted to jumpstart his synapses. In one year, there were two for some reason, one year there were none. You never know when it was coming. And obviously the accoutrements of the holiday were what they were in the show. But in real life, there was no pole. There was a nail that he hammered into the wall in the early 70s. And every year he put a clock into a bag and hung it on the wall. And the symbol of the holiday was a fucking clock in a bag for some reason. What, what kind of clock? Well, initially it was an old fashioned like a really like old alarm clock. It looked like it was from the 30s. Like he might've brought that thing out of Jersey City for all I know. But then one year he dropped it, it smashed. So then the next year there was a shitty clock from the 60s. But then a couple of years later, he dropped that thing. So there was a series of clocks and they were put in a bag and that was a poem that referred to clock and bag. And it was rhymed four line stanzas with a very complicated rhyme scheme. And I don't have a copy of it somewhere and I will burn it before I share it with anyone, let alone you. <laughs> It was very peculiar, and it was clearly, it was of great significance to him, but we never found out exactly what that significance was. Why a clock? Why a bag? But every time we asked him, he would literally scream at us, that's not for you to know. For some reason, that was what you said. So we celebrated this thing, and my brothers and I quickly realized, you don't talk about this at school, or you get more beatings than you're already getting. So we sort of, I, I literally had forgotten about it. And then, as happens when you don't allow your children to watch television growing up, all three of us ended up in L.A. sort of working for TV or close to it, and... I'm at a party with some people I know, and my loudmouth younger brother opens his yap and mentions this weird family holiday called Festivus. And I, I'm on Seinfeld at the time, and a couple of my coworkers are there, and they're instantly all around me, like flies on shit. Wait, excuse me, what is this? And I try to explain it as calmly as I can, and then turn the topic away. And then, like that weekend, or a couple people from the show are like, hey, why don't you come meet us at Swingers, which is a diner in Hollywood? And I get there, and immediately one of the guys, like, and they were talking, but these are not thugs these are like you know the head writers of the show one of them sits down so i can't leave and they say jerry thinks this is hilarious and we want to put it in the show and i tried to dissuade them as convincingly as i could saying i have the 
greatest love and respect for the show. I don't think you want to do that to it. It's done nothing to deserve that. But they said, look, you can go in your episode or someone else's. So I figured, fuck it. If this has to be smeared onto the world, then I might as well be the hand doing the smearing. Well, what you've described in this brief conversation so far seems a lot darker than what we actually know of Fest. Oh, Jesus (laughs) Christ, yes. I don't talk about the club. I went to bed every night thinking that my, there's a strong chance my father might murder me. I mean, I was raised in a cult that touched on linguistics, and I grew up in a very dark place. And I'm assuming Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David at the time, or maybe just Jerry Seinfeld, knew this at the time and was kind of mining your childhood trauma for brilliant comedy or something like that? <laughs> to be fair to them, I tried to keep that shit on the download as much as possible and still do. I don't know why I'm talking about it now, but no, I did the dance and I certainly didn't bring that up as much as I possibly could, but it seems if you take it out of context, like a very fun, quirky Frank Costanza story, which it was turned into. And by the way, it was just Jerry. This was season nine. Larry David had departed after season seven. I did a freelance season eight and then I was staffed season nine. So no, I didn't talk about that. Although at one point in a room, I, le- I did let slip some of the reality of it, like when we were breaking it, when we were committed. And I can't remember if it was Jerry or Dave Mandel after a long silence in which like it was extremely awkward and everyone was giving me these very like sympathetic looks. Someone said, why are you a lot? <laughs> I think it was Jerry. And as I'm sure you've known in American politics and also particularly... Ro- I'm a political junkie. Yes. I don't know if I have to mention this fake holiday that you birthed onto the world in the 90s has become a character with itself in within American politics, particularly Republican politics in a weird way in recent years over the past decade and a half. I'm sure you've been asked about this time and time again about how Rand Paul had an annual celebration of Festivus. And also, if you Google the words Festivus Trump, I don't know why this is. I'm going to read this out of context, but some of the first search results you get are Donald Trump, the Festivus president. Donald Trump is basically Frank Costanza in the Festivus episode. For Donald J. Trump, every day is Festivus. I don't know what that means. I am not going to click on any of these links to figure out what CNN or these other websites are trying to tell me. New York asshole yells a lot. I don't know either. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm well aware of the Rand Paul connection. In fact, if you go back and look at some of those tweets, I I, I was very satisfied to block follower after follower of his. I responded to those, like his cutesy bullshit appropriation of that by saying, here's one of my complaints. Rand Paul voted against reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act and this and that. I took exception to that and said so, but then I gave up. But at the same time, like also didn't a group of Satanists, I'm conflating two things. Some guy made like a beer can festivist decoration and had it put in the city hall of some town in Florida. And then a, a Christian group sued to have it removed. In other words, occasionally it gets entangled with not right wing politics, although I am having trouble coming up with citations for the specifics. Right, right. In kind of the most ironically dumb ways possible, your little invention here has entangled itself in certain entrails of the culture war. Dan, I think you've revealed yourself to have your finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist. What has it been like watching Festivus? Because I feel like now so much of our politics really is an eternal airing of grievances. It's like Festivus every day. And certainly when I watch a Trump rally, it is sort of this endless amount of grievance. What has it been like watching Festivus grow from this thing that is sort of an occasional football in the culture war? I haven't been watching it. I will look away. And that may sound facetious, but it isn't. I deliberately, if I come across something like that, I navigate to another page or turn the physical page or something like that. You could say there's a certain aptness in the reality of 
the use of the word in the public sphere coming to more closely resemble the mood in the house I grew up in. But I'm very flattered that the producers thought it was worthy of inclusion on a legendary sitcom like that. But I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy seeing Rand Paul or He Who Shall Not Be Named have anything to do with it. But then again, I don't want to have anything to do with it either. It's open source at this point. It always has been. I mean, there's a guy who sells poles in a apparently makes a living somewhere in Michigan and, and Godspeed to him. The word is, like, I think, the owned by Castle Rock Communications, but um, I don't have any ownership over it, and I try to stay out of it as much as possible, except once a year when people ask me about <laughs> it. The worst thing I've ever done in my life, this fucking book, technically, it's not. It's just garbage. It's just so... I wasn't going to do it. This publishing company offered me uh, very kindly some money to write a book, and I was like, I really don't want anything to do with this. Thank you. Then I found out another guy was writing it. <laughs> And I was like, well, no one should write a book about this. This should be forgotten, but and its name be erased. But if someone's going to write a fucking book, I'm going to goddamn well write a fucking book and make money about it. So I, I shit out 25,000 words. It was hard to do. Like, I didn't want to write about it. So I wrote, it's illiterate, it's poorly structured, it's maudlin, the jokes aren't funny. And at one point, I just gave up. I'm like, I can't do this. I, I don't, I find it really unpleasant romanticizing a very unpleasant past. So what I did was we have these recordings that were on cassette tapes. My dad recorded every one of the fucking things. And my mom had a guy years ago turn them into audio CDs. So I just transcribed to fill the word count because I was just out of words. I could not write another word about the fucking thing. So I just transcribed the Festivuses, Festivi, whatever the fuck, from I think 76, 78, <laughs> 80, and 84. I just, word for word, all the craziness of my dad ranting about it, the politics that Reader's Digest C-suite and forcing my crying brother to sing a song in German for some reason, you know, all the weirdness. And I just transcribed that and handed it in and they printed the dance thing. <laughs> And the check cleared. I'm not complaining. That is all to say, I don't monitor it. And the only reason I got sucked into that particular aspect of it is because they were going to pay some other motherfucker for it. And I was like, well, that motherfucker should be me. Will you breathe a sigh of belated relief if you find out that the next question I'm going to ask you has nothing to do with Festivus? I don't breathe a lot of sighs of relief particularly not in the last five years. So I may sigh, but not in relief. Fair enough. Well, a recurring theme on this podcast when we've had someone who's a comedy writer or a comedian on is we've asked them and you sort of flicked at it there. What is it like to do social and political satire, especially in mainstream TV and movies over the past half decade when, and this is kind of a hack observation to make at this point, that the reality, particularly who was leader of the free world, most recently besides Joe Biden, was a sort of maniacal, grotesque, self-satirizing miasma all of his own that sort of, there was nothing you could put on Saturday Night Live that could match what you just had at a press conference hosted by Donald J. Trump as president. You are now working on Space Force. You obviously weren't on season one, but I remember... I consulted on season two. I was a very, very small part brought in near the end. I was very lucky to be part of it. I don't want to make it seem like I was a large part of it. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. But when you were doing something like working on a TV show like Silicon, Valley, where the Elon Musk and the Peter Thiels of the world kind of make satire, I don't know if this is the correct term, but sort of irrelevant, or when you're working on a show like Veep, which centers in and around the Oval Office, when Donald fucking Trump is the leader of the free world, 
How does that work? Well, a couple things. There is a perception that I don't know how many people have bothered to have it, but that somehow it is a mother load of material to be writing comedy in a post-Trump world that could not be farther from the truth. Fuck, I wish I could remember the phrasing because it was so perfect, but I believe it was a Patton Oswalt tweet to the effect that, no, we don't want the world to break. It's not pleasant at all. It doesn't make our job easier. It makes it infinitely harder. I mean, I was on Silicon Valley the first four seasons and I shot my last episode there in the early spring of 2017. So that terrible night was very close to the end of my tenure there. But even before that, we became aware early, oh, or at least I did, I will not speak for everyone else, that, okay, maybe Peter Thiel isn't so cute. Maybe he's kind of terrifying, you know, and maybe... And which character on the show was based on Peter Thiel? Not really any of them. I mean, like he infused this and that. There were initially, I believe, I will never speak for Mike Judge, who, by the way, had the best time of my life working on that show. That Silicon Valley was the most fun I've ever had in Hollywood those four years. But I think there was initially supposed to be a little bit of Teal in the Peter Gregory character that the late Chris Welsh played so well for only one season, unfortunately. But we really moved away from that before any of it even aired. Uh, he became more a collection of different oddities. I would say there's more Gates and Wozniak and just the, the awkward weirdos. Whereas, so it was became becoming clear during the run and the production of that show, oh, okay, we thought this was initially going to be uh, certainly scathing, but the satire took a turn for the darker along the way, at least of the, the four seasons I was lucky enough to be there. And then I, when I left and went to V, it was perfectly encapsulated by the following, rather. We had, starting in 2017, put together a final season, a season seven of V, under the leadership of David Mandel, who took over from, of course, Armando Iannucci and put together three, I think, fantastic seasons that was pretty dark. It showed Selena Meyer descending to a new place, as was her trajectory over the first four seasons, starting off in season one as sort of venal, but occasionally she backed an issue that one could see was sort of on the side of the angels, but becoming more and more power hungry and bitter and, and whatnot. And it was working story-wise, and, and it was certainly very funny. And we had pretty much the season beaten out. And then before we went into production, of course, the lovely Julie Louis-Dreyfus was diagnosed with cancer, and we took a six-month cancer hiatus while she got better, thank God. But when we came back, we found, when looking at those whiteboards, that the bar for a corrupt, venal, and just downright evil presidency had been considerably lowered or raised, whichever the correct one is, and that what we had at the time, what we had put together what seemed sort of lacerating, but it was sort of quaint in a world where it was suggested that you should inject bleach into yourself. So we had to pretty much scrap season seven and re-break the whole thing. And what it ended up being is, I like to call it a comedic breaking bad. It shows the Selena character subverting an election with foreign aid and allowing and encouraging a devoted underling to go to the penitentiary and just becoming a monster. It also showed some of her trusted henchmen deciding that moral lines had been crossed long after they should have decided that, which was not intentionally referring to anything as no one had jumped ship on the, that fuck yet. So yeah, overall, it makes it much hard to do this job, which is already hard, although I'm very conscious that I'm lucky to do it. And the average comedy writer career is something like two and a half years long, like an NFL player. And I've been doing it for quite a bit longer than that. So I'm very grateful, but it's horrible. It's one thing, Bill Clinton in the news in the 90s, making fun of that, the press debasing itself over the ways, various ways he debased himself. But this shit ain't funny. And it's hard to make fun of something so already preposterous and absurd and awful. 
I think Veep came as close to doing that as anyone has. I think that Dave and Julia put together an amazing season seven. It was not a dip in quality, but it wasn't easy. And it's not fun doing this work in this environment. It makes it a lot harder. So you were a writer on Silicon Valley. It seems like since that show ended, the the hold on our collective mental real estate that this handful of tech titans have on us has only gotten tighter. What do you think it is about these guys that people love thinking about them so much or maybe don't love? We spend a lot of time thinking on them. And why are they so weird? I would say they're so weird because they're incompletely socialized and they took their native abilities and built things that broke the world. I think we think about them because they built things that broke the world. I think that when you make a billion dollars before you're 25 or 30, you only accept as good things that reinforce the things you already thought previous to that. I don't have any searing new insights. People think about them because the press fawns over them at the same time, but also reports occasionally when the, I hate to say mainstream media, but when the mainstream media actually does bothers to do its job and report on, say, Cambridge Analytica or which various outlets did an excellent job reporting on, or some of the other appalling ways that Facebook at Ali have raped the Republic. So I would say it's exactly what you think it is. It's because people kiss up to them because they're powerful and rich and because they, yes, they've wired the world together in a way that never has been done and probably shouldn't have been done. And because they have, unless something changes, been the largest single contributor to the death of democracy, at least in this continent. So that <laughs> as a satirist, as a comedy writer, when you look out on the vast landscape of the past half decade or so, if you are thinking of doing a, uh, a a definitive satire on the Trump years, what does that look like? You mean actually like something with like the British show with the puppets and all, like actually portraying <laughs> the people? Or... That's a spooky show. You mean like a romantic cleft, like primary colors, whatever that monstrosity yeah, was sure. called? I would have to be honest and say, I think that that sort of thing that a spoof or a satire directly of real people is not something that I enjoy or would do. But even if I wanted to, I don't think it could be done well. And even if you fictionalize it, I think that the closest anyone, I mean, that I can imagine, you'd have to find someone better at their job than me because I'm pretty good, but I don't think I could pull that off. It's just too horrible and too fresh. And I think Veep is as close as anyone's going to get for a while showing without actually calling someone Fronald J. Glump, that there is a Trump-like character coming from wealth and privilege, consumed by their own importance, who is willing to do more and more awful things to maintain the power and the lifestyle. I don't think I could, and I even if I could, I wouldn't. I think that spoofs and such a direct one-for-one -one satire is a low form of art, and I would avoid it, frankly. But I also don't think that it's doable. I, I think that the events of the last five years defy... I mean, you can nibble around the edges. There are various great shows that have taken on bank shots or echoes or kept the devil off screen, but haven't actually come right marching down Broadway at the subject. I just don't think you can march at the subject because it's so big and so awful. And it would be like trying to do a show about the influence of how 9-11 changed American culture in 2002. It's just, I couldn't do it probably. I wish I were that good, but I don't think anyone can. And even if I could, I wouldn't do that. I would love to do something that explores the pathologies that led to that four years. It didn't just come out of nowhere. I don't know how you would come at that. There's various, various angles to that, but that's just a big, big area and a big question. And that's not helpful, is it? All that shit I just said. No, no, I definitely hear where you're coming from. And I do have a working theory that whenever it does happen, the definitive satire and movie about the Donald Trump presidency will actually have nothing to do with Donald Trump and will probably not even mention his name. They got to do it like that show where George W. Bush was a baby called Lil Bush. <laughs> <laughs> they got to do that again. 
that was the South Park guys, right? No, it wasn't. You're thinking of the wrong show. You're thinking of That's My Bush. Oh my God. I can't believe I conflated Lil Bush and That's My Bush. But yeah, one or the other or both of them suddenly vanished right after Iraq got invaded. I remember that. <laughs> On that note, Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a blast. Come back anytime. Hey, no, the pleasure was all mine. Sorry if I was a downer. That's the world we live in. That's our bread and butter on this show. Look out the window. You can see the flames. So. Okay, since we're just now coming out of the long Thanksgiving holiday weekend, everybody is trying to pump the tryptophan out of their systems. Will, how was your Thanksgiving and what did you get into? Did you play board games with family? Did you get to go out to movies with them? I sat down for a nice dinner with the family for Thanksgiving, but then I had to kick them all out because I realized that the latest January 6th conspiracy theory documentary came out on Thanksgiving. And I said, get out of here. I got to watch Capital Punishment from Justified star Nick Searcy. So welcome to Fresh Hell. This is a follow-up Fresh Hell, Fresh Hell Part 2 from last week, deeper into the bowels of hell. So last week we talked about Justified star Nick Searcy, who you may remember as Raylan Givens' tough-talking boss. He's a big conservative guy, and he was at January 6th in Washington. And now he has a documentary called Capital Punishment, that's capital with an O, about how you got to go nice on these rioters. Come on, give them a break. So, and it came out on Thanksgiving, and I was super excited to watch it. So I paid my 10 bucks and I watched it. And I'll tell you what, I got to say, this thing was pretty wacky. Basically, it's Nick Searcy was hanging around in, on January 6th, and he has a lot of footage of this whole thing, for the most part, is premised on something you also see in Tucker Carlson's documentary and some others, which is people who are focused on anything but the hand-to-hand combat in the Capitol. And so they say, like, I was a mile away, (laughs) and here's footage of someone singing God Bless America. Right, there was just a drum circle. There were streamers. It was like the 4th of July. Yeah, I don't know why people say it was so bad. I mean, here's some people, they're doing a prayer, all this stuff. And it's like, well... Yeah, that's not the part people are really interested in. That's not the, oh, it's such a nice crowd. We're just not going to show the footage of people just like beating up cops and all this. So right, much, right, right. <laughs> a lot of capital punishment is that. Oh, and to be clear, how do they spell capital? Well, right, with an O, like the U.S. Ah, capital. Ah, ah, there we go. That's the pun. That's just good branding, yeah. And so a lot of it is Nick Searcy kind of quipping wise. Like He's like, look at how old these people were. He says, they couldn't be armed to their teeth because their teeth were false. Ba-dum. I think we see why Nick Searcy is not a hit comedian. So is he, wait, is he making fun of rioters or? Well, he's saying that they're just harmless old folks, that they aren't real rioters. Okay, okay. Basically, the rest of the documentary is him going around and interviewing riot suspects for the most part and saying, you thought tear gas is just a sign that you're allowed to walk into a building, right? Essentially, and people say, yeah, I thought I could do that. But here I've gathered some of his outfits here here and for you to peruse Nick Searcy has a somewhat inexplicable sense of style. He will always wear a cowboy hat, but in this case, he's wearing what I would say is a bowling shirt with like jaguar print fringe on the collars and the the pockets. Are you seeing this? What are your thoughts? He looks like he skinned a really racist Dalmatian (laughs) to make this (laughs) t-shirt. Sorry, this button-up shirt. And so so he has another bowling one. He loves these bowling shirts with the cowboy hat, which I just think is the just awful, awful fit. And he's 
sitting in front of a mixing board as if he's like producing a Jay-Z album. Well, and so this actually gets into what I think is the highlight of the documentary for me. So there's a couple bits he does throughout the documentary. One of them is Nick Searcy saying something really true and then getting assassinated. I mean, this might sound crazy, but he'll say like he goes to Dealey Plaza at one point. I mean, the travel budget for this documentary must have been insane, but he travels all over and he goes to Dealey Plaza and he says something like, isn't it true that like the deep state is out to get us? And then they have like a gunshot sound effect and he just falls over dead. And he does this bit several times. But the other bit he does is he interviews a lot of kind of people Fever Dreams listeners might expect. He interviews Jack Posobiec. He interviews various people who say, oh, it wasn't an insurrection. He interviews Simone Gold, who is kind of a big hydroxychloroquine booster and riot suspect. She's a doctor. And so, but throughout, he's building up to this big dance moment where they're going to listen to Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. And so each time he interviews someone, it later comes out, he's having them dance with him to We're Not Gonna Take It. And then in the climax of the film, he interviews Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, who I guess had asked Trump not to play We're Not Gonna Take It at Trump rallies. And if our listeners want to search this on YouTube, there is footage from not that long before Trump started running for president in 2015, where Dee Snyder is on stage with Trump and the rest of his family, like performing and saying, we're not going to take it at one of Donald Trump's clubs. And it is just a sight to behold to see Trump trying to go along with that. I highly recommend it. It's essential viewing. And I should say, we're not going to take it has also become like a big QAnon song because it was the last post made by Q before he disappeared. Basically, the climax of this film is supposed to be all of our rioters, our riot suspects, uh, Jack Posobiec, all these people who've been interviewed dancing, and we're going to intersperse it to we're not going to take it. This is going to be the big triumphant moment, Nick Searcy riding on a horse. And so at the end, he says to Dee Snyder, well, do you think it should be against the law for people to use your songs in ways that you don't like? And Dee Snyder says, no, I don't think there should be a law against that. And then, you know, he goes, well, and we're about to segue into the thing, right? But... <laughs> I guess whoever owned the music company that owns the bike, we're not going to take it. <laughs> so then it says, we had the, we, Universal Music Group had agreed to give us the rights to this song. However, they revoked it. Uh, so instead, just sing along at home. And so they play like almost like a like a, a dance dance revolution style like a mi- like a midi version like drum a drum roll <laughs> and then all these people are dancing in silence and then you you the listener at home are supposed to sing we're not gonna take it I mean it really is like the lowest budget operation I've ever seen well okay there there is like a dark art to what you're describing here it almost sounds David Lynchian what you're just telling me I mean I wonder if it's It doesn't look this awesome when you're actually watching it on the big or small screen because you're actually making me want to watch it. There is a performance performance artistry to what you are uh, talking about right now that I don't think is matched by the other MAGA documentaries. I I mean, it it is definitely weird enough. Like a lot of these – documentaries i'm like this is not weird this is this is just boring this is like a bizarro fox news production it's just the 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 the, the quality i mean it's just very in line with with the talking points but the idea that they spent months and months traversing the country interviewing these people and saying okay now before we go let's dance to we're not going to take it Right. And we're going to have this. It is going to just rock. It's going to bring all our characters back. And then they get this letter that says, <laughs> hey, don't use this song. And they go, oh, no, we're screwed. And then Nick Cersei goes, wait, 
what if we just have like a bouncing ball at the bottom with the lyrics and the listener at home can sing along? I mean, that is a, a truly demented mind that, that could come up with that. It sounds like this was all conjured up by someone who really, really wanted to have a bar mitzvah when they were younger, but never got to have one. And now they're like, okay, now's my chance. We're all going to rock out to D. Snyder's. We're not going to take it. And j- oh, there's there's so many, so much air guitar. Oh God. Oh, oh, oh no. Who's the most uh, maga noteworthy person playing air guitar in this? I I, I mean, it, well, yeah, probably I, Nick Cersei. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a lot of. He's like, yeah, let's rock out. And you, you know, the other thing I, it, last thing I, I want to say about this documentary is that it's it's dedicated to Ashley Babbitt. And it says, this film is dedicated to the memory of Ashley Babbitt and to all of those who've been falsely persecuted in the name of extremism, simply for expressing dissent. And it has kind of the same vibes. It reminded me of that apocryphal dedication of Rambo 3 to the brave Mujahideen <laughs> of Afghanistan. Uh, it's it, it just, I mean, the, the whole thing is, it, it, it's just really a, another world. There's also a scene where... Nick Cersei is trying to he's trying to reenact these FBI raids on on these innocent rioters uh, or riot suspects, as the case may be. And so he Simone Gold, he's trying to like be like, how loud how loud did they bang on your door? And it's like, do we need that detail? And so he just goes like, bang, bang, bang. And she's like, it was louder than that. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> louder, a little louder. Bang, bang, bang. No, it's like you're getting loud. your ear checked I, I, at the doctor. It's like, can you hear that? Can I mean, you hear this that? is just incredible content. This commitment to wrestle, you know, veracity, just getting the exact right loudness is, uh, you know, it, it just makes for really compelling viewing. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.